In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Tower of Ivory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As I was rereading some of the books for this talk, I began to realize that the topic had to do a little bit of changing. You know, my original thought was to make a comparative between Catholic prayer and what other religions consider to be prayer. Um, But, you know, that cannot be done well unless at first we set the background for what prayer actually is. You know, and this lesson will cover just that. There will be something in here for, you know, the beginner as well as the more advanced in prayer. Um, You know, prayer is kind of a big deal, and it's a very big topic. You know, I've hopefully, uh, in justice, condensed much down to only a little for you uh, to give you some food for thought. You know, my hope that this talk will be a springboard for you uh, to do more reading, but more importantly, to spend more time in prayer and to think about your own prayer life and, and what you're doing in it. So, to set the stage for you, it must first be said what prayer is. You know, you might have heard some people say that, you know, God is everywhere, and so we're always praying. Uh, Or prayer is simply becoming aware of that presence of God, you know. But in the broad sense of what prayer is, you know, that's incorrect, because it's just too passive. You know, yes, God's reflections are present throughout creation, and especially in those of us, you know, humans who are made in his image. And it is even more so in those who are baptized and in a state of grace, But prayer, in the broad sense, requires action. You know, I would define prayer as relationship. And that's what it really all boils down to. Every relationship requires just two things. Time and attention. You know, you wouldn't date someone and decide to not schedule any time with them. Uh, Then you wouldn't actually be dating them. You know, likewise, when you see young couples go out together... You know, they're sitting across from each other in each of the booths, but they're, you know, both on their phones, uh, you know, while they're sitting right across. And they're not paying any attention to each other. You know, they give each other their time, but they don't give each other their attention. And so in each of those scenarios, there's something missing from there. To get to know God means that you must give him time and attention. You know, you need to get to know the Almighty and become intimate with him. You must seek his presence, and most importantly, put yourself in his presence. You know, united prayer is different because God informs the will uh, of his presence and gives an awareness of him, but, you know, we'll return to that later. Uh, For now, you know, prayer is effort, you know, and prayer in in the general sense will always require sacrifice and detachment. No, it's that narrow path up to the mountain. You must get rid of extra burdens and keep focused if you want to reach the top. What invariably happens at each stage of our journey in prayer is that the more the soul comes to know God, the more the soul should long for him. This when coupled with your works and moral life, it's a good gauge to tell where exactly you are in the spiritual life. You know, to be concerned with God, you know, him who is utterly other means that we need to undergo this process of unwinding this possessive, self-centered, clinging and disordered seeking of things and persons. And we call this process of getting rid of all of those detachment. A healthy amount of it is good for everyone, since our goal should be to possess God alone. Detachment is a spiritual condition. You know, even if someone is a millionaire, they can be detached if they see money as something that they have, but they do not need. The process of God alone in prayer does not mean that we cease to be human, you know, and that everything kind of uh, is gone. Uh, It means that what we do think of, who we are friends with, and other good things, they should all be in their proper place. And when they're all ordered in the correct way, then this will help lead us to God. Detachment trains us to order our lives correctly, putting God first, then our own state of soul and our basic needs, and then our neighbors, you know, coming last, and our neighbors, we should always have the goal to help them to eternal salvation. 
You know, it might sound strange, but the Our Father reinforces this idea that we pray for our daily needs to be met before we pray for others. And it makes sense. You know, if you don't have enough food, if you're cold, if you don't have a place to live, you know, you're not going to be concerned about God. You're going to be concerned about how you can find protection for yourself. And then you can be concerned about God once you have that safety. There are many different evaluations of prayer. And since prayer is a relationship with God, there is really no technique for it. You know, there are different types of it, and there are different helpful models in saints. But to reduce it to a technique is to make it superficial, which prayer should be anything but. You know, you need discipline, but let it be known that prayer is not a technique as certain Eastern religions would have you believe. You know, they might teach you to breathe in a certain way or use mantras or keep repeating the same phrase. Uh, We have models of prayer in the Christian tradition, but they are just that. They're models and they're examples. And we get them from holy men and women who have gone before us. They serve as the guides, but they're not to be exactly followed. You know, it's why we say that saints are to be emulated, not copied. That is, we learn from what they are doing and the why, but we usually do not go about that in the same how which they used. You know, for example, I cannot copy St. Ignatius of Loyola. You know, I'm not going to get my leg shattered by a cannonball, spend months in a cave in Spain learning how to pray, and then found the Jesuit order. You know, it's all been done before. It's not going to be repeated. But what I can do from St. Ignatius is I can learn from the steps that he took, and I can try to put myself in God's presence when I began to pray. And to look at, you know, sort of his way of going about things and adapt it to where I'm at. In the simplest form, prayer is giving our time and attention to God. And this will look different in each person because we're all individuals. We all have different obstacles in approaching God, different imperfections, different things and circumstances in life that just get in the way. A common thread in any treatment of prayer, though, is the tripartite division of it into stages. You know, the entire subject of prayer can really be broken down into these three phases. The purgative, the illuminative, and the unitive. The purgative stage is the initial phase of prayer life. It includes coming to conversion, turning away from sin, bringing one's life into conformity with the moral law, initiating the habits of prayer and piety, and maintaining a relatively stable life in the church. This stage includes a reordering of our moral lives around God and not ourselves. It is a constant turning away from evil and working toward the Almighty. You know, and this can be a very painful stage for many since they don't want to believe that they're doing anything wrong. You know, if uh, the hardened sinner is sometimes unaware or at least unable to articulate that they are living an evil life. You know, and once again, it's the, if you want to live out the Beatitudes, you have to first follow the commandments. There are these basic precepts. If you don't have the commandments, you know, you cannot move to the next stage. And it's like that with the purgative stage. You know, purification is not an end in itself, but it's a preparation for the next stage. And that stage is an encounter with God. You know, to want what God wants, our self-love must take a back seat for our love for God. You know, in a way, this will start to rewrite the person. Uh, The goal of the stage is not to break the person, right? That can be unhealthy psychologically. It's not to, um, you know, completely break down, like the military, you join it and they try to break you down so you take, you know, orders, um, you know, just out of habit. Uh, No, it's to try to reorder your life once again. The goal of purgation is to train the person to start to love God in all their actions and open up new avenues to him where once there were roadblocks. You know, annihilating the person is something, it's very Eastern and it's very wrong. You know, God created us good, and we are never meant to lose ourselves completely, but we're meant to gain God in prayer. Our passions and affections should all be ordered to God. You know, if they're not, you still have work to do. It is only the loftiest of saints that even get close to this type of spiritual perfection which only comes after acquiring heroic virtue. You know, and the way that this happens occurs you know, in the next stage, the illuminative stage. And it's one of continued growth. 
you know, it's uh, all the good work that was started in the purgative stage continues. And this one is characterized by a deeper prayer, growth in the virtues, deepening love of neighbor, greater moral stability, more complete surrender to the lordship of Christ, greater detachment from all that is not God, and an increasing desire for full unity with God. It is often accompanied by trials and perfections, and yet other times by great consolations. Uh, something to understand before we get too much into this stage is that, you know, we're never out of the purgative stage. You know, even if we reach the unitive, uh, then we're not completely out of the illuminative. They all sort of piggyback off of each other. You know, there's a great fluidity in the three stages, and there's always more to find and more to work on. The one thing that is for sure is that you must be well underway in the previous stage if you're to reach the next stage, you know, i.e., someone who is always falling into mortal sin and isn't working on changing their life, they're not going to be able to reach the illuminative stage, you know, much, much less the unitive stages, until he's made progress in that first purgative stage, unless he's turned himself firstly toward God. The virtues are habits that we form, you know, they're ways of acting, uh, and once they become ingrained, they become habits and then they become virtues when it, you just do it easily. Because virtues help us do the right thing. You know, some people come to priests and they say that they wish it was easier to live a Christian life. And I tell them that it is once they start practicing it. By putting what they should be doing into practice, they start to build those good habits. They are training themselves to do the right thing. You know, once these habits then become normal in their life, uh, it's, it's just the pattern that they follow. And they become virtuous, and the right thing both becomes clearer and easier to do. So much so that they just do it. The virtuous man does the right thing because it is easy for him. There's no hesitation. Uh, there's no really challenge to it. He knows what he has to do, and he'll, he'll go for the correct action. He is not hindered by his fallen nature. God has built up a strength of character, you know, virtue. It's kind of like uh, virtus, you know, strength. Uh, also that root V-I-R, you know, vir, man in Latin. Uh, you know, it even says in the scripture, St. Um, Catherine of Siena, she would even tell some of her sisters, you know, be a man. You know, just kind of do the right thing. Uh, strengthen your will and your character to be more of what God is calling you to be. Uh, if you have the virtues, you know, God has built up a strength of character that is not ruled by sinful ways or by the devil's foolish tricks. The unitive stage is next, and it's one of deep habitual union with God and is characterized by deep joy, profound humility, freedom from fears of suffering or trials, great desire to serve God, and apostolic fruitfulness. Suffering in this stage is different from suffering in the purgative stage, and now it becomes a way of being unified with our crucified Lord. You know, as, we're, as before, suffering was used by God to cleanse the soul of inordinate desires and make it more like himself. You know, now it's, God is still making the soul more like himself with suffering, but it has more of a character of uh, unifying God and, and soul. You know, and don't assume that this infused prayer by God is the norm, uh, and that if you feel good when you're praying that you're in this stage. Uh, emotions are fleeting, and the bonds of friendship with God take time to not only form, but to strengthen. You know, and once again, you, you have to have hit the first two stages. If you're not working on those, uh, then don't expect to be in the unitive stage yet. Uh, but it, it, once again, it all starts off by our being present both physically and mentally for God. Something that does mark all the stages is an increase in knowledge. You know, St. Augustine said that the end of all knowledge is God. That means everything we know and that which we should know should be true and point back toward God. The more you train your intellect and increase the knowledge that you have, the more pathways you'll have to find him, the more you can look at a piece of artwork and say, you know, you can see what the artist is trying to say to you about virtues and, and how to contact God. The unitive stage is unique in that the intuitive intellect is what is engaged, and it's not our active intellect, you know, but knowledge still sets the stage for an encounter with God. Uh, next, we'll go into methods of praying. 
you know, those are the stages, and there are no easy ways to really train your will to want what God wants. Sometimes he'll infuse the virtue, but it's very, it's very rare for him to do that. Uh, and you do find it in, in quite a few saints. Um, there's no technique for praying, but there are many different ways to pray. Perhaps the most basic is vocal prayer. You know, vocal prayer is just what's said out loud. Many times they're rote prayers that people know by heart. Or they are public prayers said in the liturgy at the Mass. And it's not so much the type of recited prayer that gives it value, but whether or not we pay attention to what we are saying. You know, a devotional prayer from a saint said well and meaningfully might be more effective than praying in the Our Father. You know, the Our Father taken directly from Scripture. But if we pray the Our Father and it's not done with any care or it's said without the person meaning every single word, you know, it's not very good. You're not giving your full attention to the Lord in that time. Something to absolutely avoid is centering prayer. You know, this kind of uh, is something thrown around in different um, circles who might think that they're Catholic. Uh, and it's essentially, you know, picking a mantra and repeating it without thinking. Uh, centering prayer is contrary to the faith and what prayer actually is. You know, if prayer is a relationship, you know, you're not giving God the attention. You're focusing on saying your own words, which you might not even mean given enough time saying it. You know, you know if you think I'm wrong, you know, just for a day, tell your spouse one phrase, maybe I love you, right? It's a good phrase. Um, but now, now imagine every single moment you're with them, you just keep saying I love you over and over and over again. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you. You know, that's not a conversation that you're having with the spouse. It might be good, it might be true, um, but, you know, you're just saying what you want to say. It looks like you're spending time with them, you know, and it even looks like what you're saying is objectively good. You know, it's good to hear that within a marriage from each spouse, but you're really only spending time with yourself by giving your attention to a technique, and thereby, you know, you cut out your spouse from that equation. They just happen to be there while you're doing your own thing. And it's analogous to those who use Eastern techniques, which will all cut God out of prayer. You know, that's the external effect of centering prayer. The, eternal, the internal effect is that you are not listening to God. God might be inviting you to contemplative prayer, you know, but guess what? You know, you're too busy saying your mantra to notice him or to hear the quietness of his voice over your own. You ignore your beloved and you ignore where God is trying to lead you. You know, the one who prayer should be all about becomes an accessory to your technique. Censoring prayer is wrong because its premise is wrong. You know, it comes from Buddhism, which is rooted in the unfortunate idea that the world is evil. You know, and we can't forget those words that God gave us in Genesis, that God looked upon the world and he saw that it was good. Creation is good. It's a fallen world, but at its core, creation is a good thing and it's a gift from God. Buddhists try to reach nirvana, you know, no, it's not the 90s grunge band. It's the state of mind where the Buddhists cut themselves off from everything. You know, Buddhism tries to leave everything and everyone behind. On the contrary, Catholic prayer uses what we have to reach God. Creation is not the end of prayer, but it can be a jumping block into meditation about God. You know, you might look at the stars in the sky and think about how vast they are, how far away they are, how old they are. And in that, you can kind of jump to a meditation on God, you know, how he is older than time uh, and exists out of time and how, you know, you can't measure him. Uh, and he, his presence is just so immense. Uh, that's kind of how you would use creation to get to God. And, you know, on a, on a different level, how would you understand the Eucharist if you had to cut yourself from understanding anything about God, or food, or sacrifice, or love. You know, Catholic prayer is not about being alone and completely separate. It's personal, it's intimate, it's about encountering God who should be everything to you. Mental prayer is the next type of, of prayer, and it encompasses a whole host of different ways to pray. You know, all of which include attention given to God in the mind only, without vocalization. You know, what you absolutely need for this is silence if it's to work. And when I say silence, I mean interior silence, calming your mind. And I also mean exterior silence. You know, if you're trying to pray in the middle of traffic, 
you know, it's probably not going to work. You'll be focusing more on your braking and gassing and then, uh, you know, not hitting the car in front of you. That is, we must strive to do what we, when we use our minds, you know, go to a quiet place. Uh, go uh, to try to find the center of your soul and look for God there. And we see how Jesus, time and time again, he withdrew to a secluded place before and after each great miracle. You know, Jesus is our example. He's our hero. We're, he's the one that we're supposed to follow and look to. Prayer is also fuel for ministry. You know, without prayer, a priest will be ineffective no matter how good the parish may look on paper or no matter how eloquent he is when he speaks or gives homilies. If he's not praying, you know, God is not going to be working there or at least working as much as he could. To help this process of mental prayer, there are many models of prayer to follow. You know, recollection can be another prayer either in this stage or the contemplative stage since we can do it ourselves or it can come from God. And recollection is, you know, the sitting of the soul, the stilling of the soul, by using spiritual methods to get rid of anything that distracts from God. You know, it's always a good way to begin uh, your prayer time is to, once again, find some quiet time, a quiet place, calm your mind, and just take some time to, uh, to be with God. Or if you can't do that directly, you know, use something sacred. Go to sacred scripture and use that as a springboard uh, into your meditation. Perhaps the simplest form of prayer is Lexio Divina. You know, it's the reading of sacred scriptures or another spiritual book. It is taking these things like Mary, and it's pondering them, that are everything that's contained in their pages. It's pondering them in their heart, and it can be imaginative, too, you know, where one places himself in the biblical scene or in some other spiritual setting and tries to kind of you know, sort of think. It's a little more um, cognitive way of praying. Ejaculatory prayers are made to God from the heart. You know, their content can be anything from feelings to scripture passages to whatever comes to mind. Um, these prayers, they should be short prayers um, because, you know, short prayers, they pierce heaven. They're like, you know, little arrows shot up to heaven. Um, you know, if you say too much, God says, don't babble like the pagans, you know, and then he gives us the Our Father, very concise, very specific things to pray for. And so, you know, uh, it's good to talk to God. It's good to be able to do that. But, you know, you, you can't make it your only practice. You have to change up what you do in prayer and have different, be open to different modes of prayer. So, no matter what God is calling you to, you can be prepared to answer him. Visions and locutions are two more types of prayer, but they're more like spiritual occurrences. Uh, they don't give any indication of the soul's state of holiness. You know, they're given to the individual for the benefit of the church and must undergo great scrutiny to ensure authenticity. You know, no private revelation will ever contradict public revelation and church teaching in magisterium. Everyone must be very wary of these until the church has come to a ruling on their authenticity. Contemplative prayer consists in being made aware of the presence of the Lord. It's a type of intuitive comprehension that cannot be really explained with the higher faculties. Uh, because intuition is the power of the intellect that deals with, with simple knowing. Uh, in the movie Knives Out, it's, it's all about this you know, somewhat murder mystery that happens. A uh, nurse supposedly gave the patriarch of the family the wrong drug, which killed him instead of saving him. Uh, yet she could swear that she gave him the right drug. Uh, without reading the labels on the bottles, by intuition. She could tell the difference of the viscosity of the liquids which the two medications were in. And she knew that he, she gave him the right one, even though she couldn't tell uh, the person how, uh, or the investigator how she did. She just knew the reality of the medication because she was a good nurse. Uh, we just won't call her a great nurse because she didn't uh, look at the label. But because of this, you know, you spend almost the entire movie thinking that the evidence was tampered with after the fact. But that's the intuitive intellect. You just comprehend something. Uh, and it, it's just that simple, which makes it hard. The simpler the prayer, the harder it can be. In a moment of contemplative prayer, God's presence and the experience of him is just known by the person. But unlike murder mystery films, this type of intuitive knowledge about the divine cannot be examined by our higher intellects. 
When a person engages those faculties, if they try to evaluate prayer while they are praying, they're going to lose the prayer. They're going to lose sight of God's presence. You know, because what does God want to do in this moment? He wants to share a moment of encounter with the person. And, you know, if the person chooses to try to evaluate that encounter, then they're choosing to savor the encounter instead of savoring being with God. Contemplative prayer is mysterious. You know, some people will actually spend years not knowing what's happening to them in prayer. Yet there are other people who will say that, you know, oh, I do 30 minutes of contemplative prayer each day. But, you know, God isn't bound by this form of prayer. We're not the ones who activate it. God is. Uh, And it's by what God is doing. What these people really mean to say is that they do 30 minutes of daily meditation where they are open to being drawn into contemplative prayer. Uh, But contemplative prayer per se is completely in the purview of God. He is the one who decides when and where to give it. Uh, Contemplation is advanced and assumes that the person has made great progress in the spiritual life. You know, God is the one who leads this prayer. The contemplative never knows when God will make his presence known. The person can be praying quietly or loudly or see an image or be talking with a friend or working in a garden. God can just come up and knock on the door of the soul at any time. And it takes practice and direction to know how to answer him and what to do next. Something else to take away is that we are never strictly in one of the three stages unless we're just beginning the purgative stage. You know, even when experiencing the prayer of union, the soul can still have to undergo purgations. But the change in purgations at the stage of union is that they're accomplished through the work of God alone. You know, when God does the cleansing of the soul in the unitive stage, it's called the dark night. You know, we just celebrated St. John of the Cross uh, a couple days ago, and he wrote extensively on this. Physical purgations, you know, in that first stage are like lawnmowers. You know, they cut off the tops of weeds, which represent our imperfections. They don't actually get to the root. The dark night is like God being a gardener, coming up and pulling your imperfections out of your soul from the roots. Uh, You know, the physical sufferings are external and, of course, require patience, but they're less demanding than, you know, that, that spiritual purgation that God is doing in the dark night. Because the dark night is a spiritual suffering that cannot be mitigated by anything but God. You know, he's the physician of the soul. He knows how much treatment to give the soul to give the soul greater virtues and to give uh, the effects that he wants it, to, it to, uh, to take place within it. You know, and there's also a lot of misunderstanding around the dark night. Some think that they're in the dark night when they have a bad day and get a flat tire. Those are just bad days. You know, others think it's because they're running almost a, a low-grade depression all the time. And this is not necessarily it either. They could just be unhappy with their state of life and they're only experiencing a psychological effect. If your suffering is not deep, if it is, and it's relieved by things, then it's not the dark night. And once again, the dark night is at the, uh, it's a sort of a purgative uh, type of prayer, but it's in the unitive stage. So if you haven't undergone the first two stages, don't expect yourself to be experiencing the dark night. Uh, and once again, your spiritual director is like your spiritual medical doctor who can diagnose your condition and give you good advice for going deeper and how to deal with these problems and stay close to God through these trials. Just because vocal prayer might be basic does not mean it is not effective. It can be the doorway to contemplation and can even sustain it if it pleases God. Once again, we see it is time and attention that makes a prayer effective. You know, St. Teresa, when talking with uh, uh, one of her sisters, she found that the sister would just pray the Our Father, but she was reaching the highest forms of unity in prayer just by praying this vocal prayer, but praying it very well, very fervently, very much from the heart and meaning all the words that she said. Uh, there, is, there has been this great debate uh, of sorts, I guess, or that sort of raged around whether vocal or mental prayer was superior. It seems like a very medieval thing to be talking about. Uh, the truth is that the better one is the one that's prayed worthily and well. You know, whatever God is calling to you at that time and whatever you can actually pray well is going to be better. 
That being said, we need to be open to the way in which the Holy Ghost wishes to lead us. This may mean that at times we need to stick to a regimen of vocal prayer and let go of ejaculatory prayers. Other times, God is prompting us to do just the opposite, and he wants to hear what's on our heart. He wants us to be able to, you know, kind of psychologically vocalize it and then affirm our trust in him. Uh, We can always talk to him, but what priests sometimes see in people is that when they abandon their rote prayers, their prayers run the risk of becoming too self-centered, and they lose track of God's promptings, uh, thinking that they're doing exactly what they need to be doing. And a holy hour turns into you just kind of, you know, blabbering on and, and not really praying, not really talking to God, but just sort of talking and, and letting your, your mind and imagination run. It is good to have a mix of prayers and to be open to changing things up. You know, scripture is always good, but too much or not reading it well can be like having too much food or not getting enough vitamins from your food. You know, you can have too much of a good thing. And you can miss what is important if you're not having the correct amount of it. You know, granted, there are times when we commit ourselves to prayer, such as when we might make Lenten promises to do different mortifications, or even more so when vows are taken or a man is ordained. And it is in these situations where we are not to abandon prayer. You know, a deacon cannot stop praying the breviary uh, simply because he's just not feeling it at the moment. Uh, His public promise, made before and accepted by the bishop, to pray the breviary for the good of the entire church spread throughout the world, that's more important than whatever his feelings might be at the time. And he needs to learn how to train himself to push through those times of prayer to really fulfill his commitments that he's already made. A takeaway about any of the methods of prayer is there is a simplicity to prayer no matter what stage you are at or how you are praying. Time and attention. That is really what it all comes down to. You can do all the reading you want in the world on prayer, but you can condense it all into those two things. Sometimes someone looking to the face of our Lord on the cross can be enough for God to draw them into contemplation. Other times it's saying rote prayers that you have known since your childhood, and still other times it may be making a prayer from the quiet of your heart. Prayer is the heart of our works, but the two are truly inseparable. Our prayer life will enhance what we do, and our morally good actions will enhance our prayer. Sin is the force that can topple progress being made, and so we need to see how to put together prayer or how to put prayer together with our action. The devout life is the love of God put into action. You know, a good test as to whether or not your prayer is authentic is what your moral actions are looking like. You know, if you're hardened in mortal sin, your prayer life is going to be non-existent. Uh, our moral actions in prayer are intricately tied together. The more a soul flees from sin and makes an effort to not only root out sin, but their personal imperfections, the more, they deeply, the more deeply they experience prayer because they're more open to God. They're more used to doing God's will than their own will. And that's something that will make prayer all the more delightful and satisfying. The order is that first, mortal sin must be turned away from completely. Then venial sin must be turned away from also completely. You know, you should not be deliberately choosing to commit venial sins. Uh, even like in, when Pius X made frequent communion uh, a thing, uh, he said too that you should not be committing venial sins uh, or choosing to commit venial sins deliberately. Uh, that's a sign that you should not be receiving communion frequently. So, you know, there's this, uh, there are always these imperfections to be worked on, but the imperfections are just kind of, um, they're sort of uh, shortcomings in our own sort of psychology or spiritual life. Uh, And those come after we have worked on sin and are not sinning freely. The only way for us to truly make progress is with God's grace. But we can help open ourselves up to God's grace by fasting and undertaking mortifications like almsgiving. These will grow a soul in piety and then fervor, 
which is when piety is sustained and deepened. Only the most saintly of individuals have almost imperceptible faults about them. You know, the rest are dealing with all of the above struggles. St. James says that faith without works is dead. Sincerity and eagerness are the beginnings of devotion, but they are not to be confused with devotion itself. Now, let's say, for example, that it's the Feast of the Assumption. Someone who only has a little bit of knowledge would not know what this feast is all about. You know, but perhaps they're excited about it all the same. And you ask them why they're excited, and they tell you they don't know why they're excited. It's the assumption, but they're just happy to be here. You know, that's a type of false devotion, because they don't actually know what they're doing. They don't actually know what they are praying. You know, we need a faith that is as trusting as a child's, but we need to use our adult intellects to understand the faith if we're to love God as best we can and come into contact with his mysteries. You know, the Lord said, be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. The same thing with eagerness, or what we would call immature zeal. In seminary, you know, this is easy to see in many of the guys who are new to a program of priestly formation. They spend, you know, all their time in chapel, and they do all these extra penances, you know, but they have not been living that life for that long. They're full of judgments of others, They are thinking that their practices are for everyone. They don't even see the merit of the practices that they're doing. You know, as soon as dryness comes to these uh, type of people, they abandon these practices and they lose all their trust in God. You know, eagerness is a false devotion if it is never matured into true piety. That is an evident show of inner religious workings. Uh, Those who lack piety are full of empty show and they do nothing good for their souls. These people will also be quick to point out the splinter in their neighbor's eye and make their opinions known instead of choosing a more humble path or choosing to uh, do fraternal correction in a more, uh, a more fitting way. Their immature zeal can lead them to do penances that they are not ready for. As they enter the illuminative stage, They can be so focused on outer works like the Sadducees that they lose the love that they once had for God. Works that should free the person to love God turn into spiritual shackles that make them slaves of their own perfectionism and their own desire to control their progress. Too many works can show a lack of trust in God if he is not their origin, their center, and their end. You know, the heresy of uh, of Pelagianism is thinking that, you know, we can get to heaven on our own merits. It's our own works that get us there. And the reality is, you know, we can't really claim anything good on our own. Every good work is started by God, and we need to rely on him if it's to be brought to completion. And, And so that's the danger in thinking that, you know, by doing all this fasting or giving up all these things or whatever it is, it's not those acts just purely on the outside that's going to get the person to heaven. Uh, Jesus spent much of his ministry trying to convince the Sadducees and Pharisees for an inner conversion, not just to be worried about externals. A way in which we share our sincerity in prayer is sticking to it. We need to make prudent judgments about how much time and what type of prayers we are saying. But once we do, we must keep our commitments to God. For instance, it might be a bad idea, idea for a single mother who works two jobs to attend Mass daily if she really doesn't have the time for it. However, a stay-at-home mother uh, who can bring her children with her or can leave them at home alone, uh, she might find attending daily Mass fits well into her schedule, and it's actually a good offering to God. And then at that point, when she finds that, she would pick sort of a a number of days, say, you know, like, she'll attend uh, daily Mass, you know, two or three times a week. And that way she can know whether or not she's making uh, progress. She's made an objective sort of Uh, decision, and if she doesn't get to Mass two times a week, then she knows she's slipping. Uh, And if she's going to Mass more than that, um, she needs to see whether or not it's it's out of zeal or or what the reason is why behind she's going more, Uh, and then maybe talk with a priest before kind of readjusting that number. Dryness in prayer is also something that will be encountered by almost everyone. Think of times of dryness like lovers' games with God. He's training the soul to seek him. For there is more joy 
when him who was once thought lost becomes found. When we experience dryness, it's a sign from God to increase our fervor for him all the more and to not give up prayer. Uh, Just like marriage, true love is shown when times are the hardest, not the easiest. Even when prayer seems to not be bearing any fruit, we can still trust that God is accomplishing much work under the surface and is preparing us for still greater heights of prayer. Uh, You know, the big thing is just not to lose hope in those periods of dryness and to take another evaluation of yourself. Maybe there's a sin that's slipping back into your life because a lot of times it's our own inadequacies that cut us off from God and that can be the source instead of, let's say, like a higher prayer. Prayer is a different path that we must all take. For some, they spend many long and hard years in the purgative stage, but then they, get, then they advance quickly through the illuminative stage to the unitive. Others will advance quickly through the first two and then have to experience the dark night to be further purged by God and reach the unitive. St. Teresa's way was simply that of prayer, and her purgations were through physical sufferings. At times it seems almost, almost, as if she grows impatient with St. John of the Cross, who received his purgations through the dark night. They both had these different uh, perceptions of prayer. They both had these two different paths that they were on, uh, and it was a completely different experience of prayer for each of them, even though both types of prayers were considered unitive. You know, two different saints and two different parallel paths to the one true God. If you're not sure which prayer path you are on now, or how to walk the path before you, or if there is even a path, you know, talk with a a priest or a religious sister. Uh, We'd be happy to help give you some direction and help point the path to God. God love you. So I'll go through some of the sources that I've used. As always, uh, sacred scripture. Uh, You can always be on the lookout for good examples of how to pray in uh, the scriptures themselves. There are also a few bad examples in scriptures, but um, only pay attention to the good. Uh, This book, The Fulfillment of All Desire by Ralph Martin, uh, is a great book, very comprehensive, very easy to read, and he covers everything uh, very well. So that's very uh, highly suggested. It's the best overall summary that I've found about prayer outside of sacred scripture itself. Next, I recommend the Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. Um, He was filled with pastoral knowledge of being a bishop, very talented guy. His writings are are very deep, and you can tell this man is just on fire with the Holy Spirit. Uh, He has tips on how to lead a holy life, no matter what state of life you find yourself in, and he gives some very practical advice. Uh, Also, if you're looking for more of a practical uh, kind of book to read, I would suggest Spiritual Combat by Lorenzo Scupoli. Uh, he gives more useful tips for rooting out sin in your life. You know, that is how to form these good habits that will overcome their evil counterparts. And if you think you're hitting contemplative prayer, you know, you should have a spiritual director. If you're not sure, you know, talk with a priest. We can help you figure that out. Uh, for more reading on that, I would suggest uh, The Life Within the Prayer of Union by Dominic Hoffman. Uh, you can put down whatever other books you're reading on contemplative prayer because... Uh, this one, it truly is the bee's knees. Uh, you know, some of them seem very academic, like the people who are writing these books have studied them for a while, but they haven't actually experienced them. Uh, Father Dominic, he was a, he's a Dominican. He was uh, kind of a bigger name in spiritual direction in the 1950s and 60s. And he's very precise with his language. And you really get this understanding that he's experienced uh, what, what he's gone through, unlike some modern Carmelite authors, which... You know, Carmelites won't want to listen to my podcast anyway. So, the, uh, And another th- one that I recommend is The Cloud of Unknowing. Um, the author is unknown, and it, it's kind of more directed towards monks, but still there's some, some good, little, good little snippets in there and takeaways for, for all of you. So uh, I'll take any, any questions that you might have on prayer. Well, that's the whole point of, you know, the introduction to the devout life. Uh, it's not, you know, in our, in our works that we're saved, but the works are very important, right? 
Um, and that's an indicator of if you're not doing any work, um, then you know, you're, you're not living the prayer. You know, your life should become a living prayer to God where everything you do is for God. Uh, you shouldn't just kind of you know, sit around and be a bum. Um, that, that's not getting you any closer to the Lord. And so you can't just expect that. You know, I mean, it's, it's very Protestant with the whole. It's just, it's just grace. I mean, they have grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. I don't know how you can have three alones and not anything else. But anyway, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where faith without works is dead. Um, it's in the, the letter of, uh, of St. James there. Um, but they don't have it in their scriptures. So unfortunately, they missed that bit. It's good to have that mix of prayer where you can think about some of the sayings of the saints. Uh, and also that's kind of, um, I mean, it sounds like what St. Augustine was doing there was a little bit of Lexio Divina, an imaginative prayer where he's putting himself in the biblical scene. Uh, so it's good that you're, you're able to change that up, have some rote prayers that, um, that are good and, and, and from scripture, but also be able to, you know, have a little more uh, creativity in your prayer as well. Yes. Could you clarify the statement, something that the Pope made about venial uh, sin and not frequent communion? Yeah, if you're deliberately still attached to venial sin and committing venial sin frequently, that you should not be receiving communion frequently either. It's when he gave the dispensation for, because um, before, if you wanted to receive communion daily, you know, you had to go to your priest and go through this process and they would figure out um, if you're living kind of like a holy enough life. Uh, but, you know, what Pope Pius X did was essentially uh, saying, you know, like, you don't have to go to a priest. If you are living these out, you can go to receive uh, communion daily. What did he say? He's just, he's, he's limiting it. It's not just, you know, receive communion, you know, all the time, every time, no matter what. It's, uh, there are still some parameters for it. And it's, it's, I'd have to go and, and look up the, um, uh, the document where he, he says that and gives the, the dispensation for that. But I could find that for you. Well, uh, how binding is that? I mean, is this... It was never abrogated. It was never taken out of church law. It's still on the books, technically. It's on the books, but it, wasn't, it doesn't seem to be promulgated today. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, by virtue of the fact that it's still a document and it hasn't been uh, rescinded in, an, in a document that's coming after it, it's still there. It has to be overturned by something more recent uh, in, in, over, in order to, uh, for it to be fall out of use. Is there anything in the catechism that says something about that? Uh, depends which catechism you go to. The, the latest one. Yeah. The latest one, uh, probably not. You, to read the latest catechism, you really do need like a vast amount of theological knowledge, uh, and you have to have some formation to really understand what they're saying. There's a lot of kind of ambiguity, and they don't um, they don't always fall back on uh, like the most sort of clear, they don't go to the most clear language when saying these things. They don't cover, you know, some of these um, uh, not necessarily bulls, but different documents that popes have come out with. So it, the, the current catechism, to my knowledge, is silent on uh, the frequent reception of communion. It's silent on what? On the frequent reception of communion. Well, the, the basic idea is that communion helps you to, and takes away communion sin. Commun- well, it's the... the um, in the Mass, when you know, the priest says, May Lord forgive us our sins, it, uh, that will remit venial sin for you to then receive 
the Eucharist, but he's talking about the attachment to committing venial sins. So it's not having the venial sins themselves, but it's like, oh, I want to do this. Uh, it's having that disposition in your soul. That's where it would say, you know, okay, you know, you need to, to do some more mortifications. You need to really, uh, you know, talk with a priest and figure out uh, what's going on there and, and get to confession to receive the graces, to be able to overcome that weakness and that desire for uh, venial sin, that will desire for venial sin. Oh, just uh, for the record, I am not taking any questions on aliens tonight. So far, you talked about the Depends how you use it. I mean, I would categorize it more um, as centering prayer if you just take it at surface level, right? If you, if you say it and you actually mean it, like you say, you know, Jesus, I trust in you, and then you pause, right? Uh, or you say it slowly, or what, and you're more open to whatever God's doing, but if you just keep saying it like, you know, Jesus, I trust in you, it's not, that, that's when it would be considered centering prayer and not an actual prayer. But it can prepare you for if it's not centering prayer, yes. Because otherwise you're, you're limiting yourself. You're not actually praying with God. You're not having, giving him that attention that should be there. You're, you're just, I mean, okay, you're setting aside time to say your, your thing, but you're really not engaging God at all and being open to what he wants to do in you. You, you just want to say your thing and, and, and that's it. That's the issue with, with centering prayer. Any other questions? Okay, so the next talk will be January 19th on the art of arguing. Uh, it'll pretty much just be a run-through of the Socratic method, how to start with a premise and use facts to support that premise uh, and know what good facts actually are. Uh, it's the kind of uh, class you would have if you went to the seminary or you entered law school or you studied philosophy. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you, God. And so we do have cookies.